Are we inquiring of Yahweh? Let's pop the top on this. Cue the music. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the only one. Pick up your sword, gather your What's up, guys and gals? You're listening to another episode of that Philly Faith Podcast, where we talk the walk and walk it too. Set the tone for us, Chris. Let everybody uh, know what you're in for. You didn't say I'm Carl, because I was waiting to say, and I'm Chris. Oh, I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. Set the tone for us, Chris. All right, so. You're right. I rushed myself. <laughs> you did. That's yeah, all right. You, had, you didn't hesitate to call me out on that. You didn't. Nope. Got bus tracks all over my Right. Back. Well, it's only because I don't, I have a joke. But it's not really a dad joke or very spiritual. But I heard it this this past week, and it's so awful that it just made me laugh so hard. Worse than the killing Goliath joke. Yeah, last and week. I will say too, listening <laughs> listening to our podcast from last week and hearing that joke, I thought, yikes! No, don't apologize. That was kind of kind of bad. Like you don't want to associate a a babysitter with a killer but i mean i people guess need to goliath, know what they're getting into with us yeah, right yeah <laughs> i guess goliath was slain for a purpose but it's still so not technically not a murder but still it's not it's kind of funny i was you know before you hit your joke steph and i my wife and i were just talking about that yesterday or the day before mm-hmm. and i asked her do you think that god set goliath aside for the specific purpose of david killing him as a witness to the people around because th- th- what brought the question up for me Right. Was there's a song. I think it's a Casting Crown song. And there's, uh, how does he say it? At one point he talks about how the, the, the other soldiers standing by shaking in their boots wish they had the courage to stand like David did. And my question was, do you think they really lack the courage? Or do you think God held them back from confronting Goliath for the specific purpose of raising up David in their eyes? Because he'd already anointed David king. Mm-hmm. Officially, and this was really the first act that David committed in the full view of the of the people of Israel, and especially the armies. Right. So, do you think it's really that the soldiers of Israel were cowards, or do you think it's that God moved their heart to to not move forward, so right. that David would have that opportunity? I don't know. Maybe maybe God instilled the fear of Goliath to to set that in motion. Mm-hmm. So that's a good it's a good question. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer either. An I, yeah. it's, it's an interesting question to ponder. Right, right. And that's, and that's a, I mean, a good question too, that, you know, Goliath was set aside to, to be slain. Mm-hmm. That's, it's a good question. Like, I, I don't know how to answer that. I right. think I need to take some time to kind of research that and think about it. Maybe we can dig into that more next week in our open Maybe. discussion. Right. Because I think it's a worthy question to, to dig into. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Uh-huh. Back to the oh man, now my <laughs> jokes, joke. my, my jokes gonna be really insignificant after oh, that. I'm sorry. <clears throat> so here it goes. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm sitting down. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat for this one. Okay. Why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> Why? Because. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, there's the tone. There it is. Yeah, that was. I, I told you, but it, I don't. When I heard it, it made me laugh out loud so hard like <laughs> real like i'm like that's so childish but i'm like 
That is some of my humor. So there you go. Well, I feel like if we set the bar super low, right at the outside of the episodes in the podcast, <sighs> yes. we have nowhere to go but up. Right. Well, it only gets better. Well, why that. am I trying to aim so high with my dad jokes then? Maybe I'll just well, I, That was kind of insulting, I guess. I'm not saying <laughs> that you're setting us a, a low bar, but you know, let's, right. yeah. let's keep this realistic. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, the real us. Getting to know us. Yep. So as those of you listening know, we always start out our episodes with an open discussion segment, an open discussion segment. Let me try this again. As those of you listening know, we always start out our episodes with an open discussion segment that we're now calling What's On Your Mind. So, what's on your mind, Chris? I don't know. It's been kind of a kind of a slow week for me. Has it? Yeah, not not very. You say that like like I should have something. Oh, I did. No, I didn't mean to. Oh, okay. Like, no, you're good. like, like, you're like, really? Do you, do you not remember? But no, I, I mean, not, not too much. Uh, not too much going on. Spiritual wise, reading anything biblical? Not as much as I should probably. Nothing, nothing to talk about really. No, no. Do you have anything? I've got a lot, but I don't know how much I want to get into this week. <laughs> to be honest with right. you, I, I'll be honest. This week's been rough. Especially the last couple of days, he's he's been working on me on a couple of things and not in a not in a pleasant way. Right. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. He's uh he's been refining me and he warned me ahead of time he was going to. But I don't know if I want to dig into that this week because I'm still kind of processing it. Happened okay. yesterday, so I guess just teaser for next week when I've kind of processed. But I do feel like it's important to share to give hopefully somebody listening some encouragement. Okay. On how he can refine us and how it can feel like he's tearing us down or breaking us down, but there's a purpose behind it. Right. And I, I worry that that sometimes we tend to, we, we, we go through those refining seasons, those wilderness experiences, I guess. Mm-hmm. And there's a danger in allowing it to let us lose hope. Right. Right. We need to maintain our trust that he has a purpose in it mm-hmm. and that our greater good is that purpose. But again, teaser. All right. I don't want to dig into that just yet because it was rough and I don't know how to how to express it quite yet. Right on. Fair. Fair. All right. Well, so I'll, I guess I'll kind of I'll, I'll I'll pose a question to you. Okay. This doesn't happen very often. You All need right. to, you need to yeah. ask me more questions. <laughs> Put me on the spot more. Do you, do you think it's right for us to give things over to God that aren't explicit? Explicitly spiritual things. Can you give me an example? Uh, yeah. So I'll use myself as one. I don't, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but here it goes. So, I mean, you know, as well as I do for years, I've struggled with weight Mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth. So a friend of mine recently said, why don't you just give it over to God? Stop trying to control it. Give it over to him, pray on it, you know, meditate on it, seek his answers and give it over to him. Right. I thought that's a really good idea. And I can't believe I haven't thought of it before. But I think we get, I think it's, we get so caught up with. So before I get too far into that, I'll say, so that's not necessarily a spiritual thing. Right. I mean, the Bible does talk about gluttony and, and abusing, abusing your body and in your temple, 
But as far as like struggling with weight loss, is it strictly like a spiritual thing? You know what I mean? Right. So, but that doesn't mean, does that mean we shouldn't give it over to God? Like, is it selfish of us to say, hey, I need help with this. Help me with it. Right. You want my response? Right. And so I asked the question. Fair enough. That does make sense. (laughs) You would ask a question you want me to answer. I don't think we give enough over to God. I think we tend to hold back from him. And I also think we tend to over-spiritualize things and and create this false dichotomy between spiritual things we give to him and non-spiritual things that are just us. Mm -hmm. I think God is interested in every aspect of our being. I think he wants us to seek him from everything, from the little things that irritate us or bother us or concern us or cause us fear or anxiety to the big things. Right? Right. That would be my answer. I I think if you're hesitating to give anything over to God, you're wrong to hesitate. Right. I think everything should be given over to him in every way. I think we should always seek his counsel and inquire of him. Right. That's kind of, that's pretty much the answer that, you know, that I came up with is, you know, I, I I feel like we try to, like I don't know, protect God. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Like like he needs our the, our protection from our problems. Like like we're acting as his defender. Right. So he yeah. Does not need. <laughs> yeah. He does not need me to bother him with that. He has got enough on his plate. You know what I mean? Like, and I think we kind of get so wrapped up in that that, like you said, we forget to give everything over to him. Like literally throwing your hands up in the air, Jesus, take the wheel. You know what I mean? I think you hit the nail on the head there with with that attitude that it's not big enough for him. I think there's a lot of times, and I've been guilty of this, where we won't pray to him about something. Or in worst case scenarios, you'll even see church leaders encouraging their congregations not to give him quote-unquote little things because it's Mm -hmm. too small for him. Nothing's too small for him. He wants to be a father to us. Right. Is, you know— Think about your daughter. Is is any concern or care that she brings to you too small? Absolutely not. Yeah. And he's a better father than any of you or I right. or anybody else could possibly be. There's nothing too small for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an error that the enemy plants in our mind. Right. Because the enemy doesn't want us to seek after God. Because the, the more we're left to our own devices, the more we tend to err. Mm-hmm. It's, it goes back to what we talked about a few episodes ago, keeping him at our center. That means the center of everything. Mm-hmm. If God's the center of our circle, there's nothing that sh- that he should be left out of. No decision, no concern, no care that he should ever be left out of if he's truly at the center of our circle. Anytime we take an issue that we're facing and we say, I'm not going to bring that to God, guess what you just did? You pulled him out of the center of your circle in that category, right. in that area of your life. Right. I'm not mm-hmm. rebuking you. Don't get me wrong. Right. That's not what I'm, it's not my intent. I think we're all guilty of this mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And when I look back, And when I evaluate my life, those areas where I struggled, it was because I didn't seek him enough. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because I sought him too much. It was always because I didn't seek him enough. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think when we don't seek him, he just goes hands off. He watches. Mm -hmm. And I think he'll go hands off until we do seek him. Right. Right. And, and, And I think that, yeah, I'm absolutely right. And also, too, I think, you know, we there's just things that we just don't think to give over. Right. Mm hmm. It's like we've, it's stuff that we've been fighting for so long that we don't think it doesn't cross our mind. Just, hey, let's give this up. Yeah. Let's take, like, you know. I don't think we pray enough. Right. 
we treat prayer like it's something it's something we do for 30 seconds in the morning and maybe a minute or two at night and that's it mm-hmm. there's really no dialogue between he and i or us and him throughout the day and there should be right. paul tells us to pray without ceasing that doesn't mean like constantly be in a, a state of on your knees prayer but constantly be in a state of conversing with him mm-hmm. right yep. at, at any moment you can talk to him in your mind right he hears it right if it's in his will he hears it right the only time he says that he won't hear our prayer is i forget which proverb but in proverbs it says that those who turn their ears away from and it's, this is very applicable of what you know our our series this intent series about the sinai covenant he says those who rebelliously turn their ears away from his torah even their prayer is an abomination to him. Mm. And so that's the one area where where I would caution that you can separate yourself from him. And I don't think it's to the point where he doesn't hear your prayer. He can't hear it. He hears all of it. He hears everything. He's everywhere, right? I think he chooses not to listen Mm -hmm. when you're openly rebelling until you repent. Right. Makes sense. Question answered. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't. I answered it well. Yeah, I guess it wasn't. I guess it wasn't meant for an actual answer, just more of a, a dialogue type of yeah, conversation starter. I do think it's important to inquire of him always and to pray more than we do. Mm-hmm. Right. I, Micah says something, he's not with us today, but, but he says something I really like about prayer. And he says, he hears it a lot from people. Well, I can't do anything else for you. So I'll at least pray. And he's like, at least pray. That's the most important thing you can do. Right. That should be the first and foremost way that we respond to someone else's concerns or troubles or trials, right? Mm-hmm. Reach out, you know, actively help them. That's important also, obviously. We're supposed to be his hands and feet, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. But prayer should never be out of the equation or it shouldn't be a last resort. Oh, right. I can't physically help you, so I guess I'll pray. There's nothing else I can do. Right. That should be the, the first thing I we can do, do is pray, yeah. That should be, that's the most you can do. Yeah. Right? It's the most important thing you can do. Absolutely. He should be at the center of everything. Have you ever heard the phrase biblically singing a new song to Yahweh? No. I've been kind of obsessed with it for a few weeks. Uh, you see it in several places. David says it several times throughout the Psalms, uh, notably in Psalm 33. I don't have this written down, but I'm just kind of giving you some locations. Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 42. And where I really find it fascinating is with the 144,000 from the book of Revelation. You know, do you you remember that passage? Mm -mm. So in the book of Revelation, talking about the the end times tribulation period, right? It says that there's 144,000 people that he sets aside during that, that period of time who act as ministers and prophets, right? They're essentially pointing the way back to Yahweh, Mm -hmm. telling people to repent. He says these are people that haven't like stained their clothes with sinning with the Antichrist, right? Right. Uh, it's very similar, I believe, when you look at First Kings chapters 18 and 19, that's when Elijah is confronting the priests of Baal. And then afterwards, Jezebel sends out a death decree to Elijah that she wants to have him killed. And then he runs for his life in chapter 19, and he goes and isolates himself, and then he tells God, it's too much, I can't do it anymore. And that's that 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 account where we have him going in the in the wilderness for forty days, mm-hmm. coming to Mount Sinai. Everything points back to Mount Sinai, interestingly. And he finds a cave there, and that's where he hears the still small voice. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Kind of remember that passage. Right. That's it's very similar because Elijah's frustration was that he felt like he was the only one left. There was nobody left who who still served Yahweh. Right. Right. 
when he confronts the priests of Baal in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, there's a, there, there's a group of people standing by the wayside, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of watching to see which God will win, right? They want to mm-hmm. see which God will win before they make a choice. Yeah. And Elijah, and there's a lesson in this too, it's just kind, of, kind of a side note, but Elijah preaches to him. And he says, how long are you people going to waver between two opinions? If you want to serve Baal, serve Baal. If you want to serve Yahweh, serve Yahweh, but stop wavering. Stop trying to play both sides to the middle. Make a mm-hmm. choice. But he doesn't convince anybody. The great prophet Elijah gives this stirring sermon to these people, and not one person is convinced. The people aren't convinced until they see Yahweh rain fire down from heaven. And it says that, that Yahweh turns the hearts of the people back to himself. Mm-hmm. So Yahweh does the work. And I think there's a lesson in that. We try so hard to shine his light and convince people to do the right thing, to follow him, to serve him, right? Right. And... It's not us that does the convincing. It's Yahweh. We really have to keep that in mind. As a side note, that was part of what he was sort of addressing me with was a pride issue. I'm getting super frustrated with the growth on the podcast. I'll be honest with you. And it's right. it's so hard when you're walking that middle road, right? Because you have so many people in the ditches. And the people in the ditches don't want to hear you speak the whole truth. Right. You can't be popular, right? Right. But in my flesh, I want to be popular. <laughs> right. And that's pride. It's not mm-hmm. a good thing. And I think that's part of what Elijah dealt with here. I, th- I believe that's part of his breakdown, right, is that right. he feels like he's not really accomplishing anything. Mm-hmm. But the point is, Yahweh tells him that he's wrong. You're not alone. I've reserved 7,000 people who have not, he says in his words, bent the knee to Baal or kissed him. So they never worshipped him. Now, he forgave the people by the wayside when they chose to serve Yahweh, but they weren't unstained. Mm-hmm. Right. They had worshipped Baal. Right. He forgave them for it, but they had worshipped Baal. But there were a separate set of there were there were there was a separate group of people, the seven thousand that he that he set aside and protected from Jezebel that had never worshipped Baal. Right. So this was a different class of person. And it's very similar to this one hundred forty four thousand we see in the book of Revelation who whose clothes have been unspotted, it says. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're talking about. The difference between repenting from falling in line with the Antichrist and never having fallen in line with the Antichrist, right. right? But it says something interesting. It says that they're taught a song that no one else can learn. But what's he talking about? I mean, is there like some secret casting crown song that they that they sing and nobody else can quite get the, the lyrics to it? Right. I don't think that's the case. No. Right. And so I kind of like chewed on this for weeks because I don't know why he put it on my heart, but he did. You need to learn a new song, right? When he was really like refining me, I was going through, well, I'm always going through the refining process because I'm as broken and wayward as you can be. But right. at one point through this refining process, as one of the things he really pressed on me was learning a new song to sing to Yahweh. So what does that mean? Right. And I found this passage in Job chapter 33, and I find it fascinating. So to give you the background of this passage, this is when you remember the, the Job account. Yep. Correct. So he's attacked viciously by Satan in every way you can possibly be attacked by, by Satan from losing his family to losing his servants to, to marauding bands of, of bandits, uh, evil men, right? Right. To natural disaster, to sickness, to um, terrifying dreams and visions, he said. He was mm-hmm. he, every way that, that, that was, satanic forces can attack. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was attacked in every yeah. way. And then it came to a head when he was even attacked by his own friends. His three friends came, and they're like, oh, you're just a sinner, you need to repent. You're a bad person, right? right? Yeah. Awful. It's like the like the salt in the wound, right? Mm-hmm. The people you're supposed to be able to depend on, even they've turned against you. Right. So this young man 
in the account named Elihu, he's listening to all this. He's listening to the three friends attacking Job. He's listening to Job's responses. And he finally gets fed up from both sides. He's like, you're both wrong. All of you are wrong. He's like, I sat here listening all this time because I thought you're elders. At some point, elders are going to speak wisdom. I'm just a young man. What do I know? And he's like, now I realize wisdom doesn't come from age. So I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he gives this really blunt message to Job and his friends. And he's never chastised by Yahweh, by the way. The three friends are chastised and Job is chastised. Eli- Elihu never once does Yahweh chastise him. So what he speaks is truth. But at one point he gives this, he gives this analogy of someone who's fallen into sin, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the overarching narrative from the three friends in Job is that if you sin, then you've just fallen away and that's it, right? You deserve every bad thing that happens. And, and Elihu's trying to explain to them, Yahweh doesn't want you to fall away from him. It's not his desire that anybody perish, right? right? So he gives this analogy of this person that's fallen into sin, right? Mm-hmm. And they're afflicted by Yahweh. Typically, when you see the word afflicted in Scripture, not always, but usually it's in reference to someone who's sinning or rebelling, or rebelling, and they've been inflicted by Yahweh so that they'll repent and return. Affliction is to cause you to return to him. That's mm-hmm. the whole point. So it says this person's on the precipice of falling into the pit, right? Falling into the proverbial pit of his right. sins. And he's afflicted by Yahweh, and Yahweh rescues him. And Elihu says, Yahweh will do this once, twice, even three times for a man just to rescue them from going down to the pit. His mercy's big, is what Elihu's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Obeying him matters, right? but his mercy's huge, and we can't, we can't discount that. But he says something interesting when he's talking about this person, this figurative person that has been rescued by Yahweh and turns away from their sins. He says this. He sing, it's in, I'm sorry, Job chapter 33, verses 27 and 28, he says, He sings to others, saying, I have sinned and perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life sees the light. End quote. So in the context here, the song that he's singing is the message he's presenting. Mm-hmm. Right? God figuratively or poetically likens this message of truth to a song. Right. And I believe that you can link that to the Psalms, Psalm 33, what Isaiah says in chapter 42 of singing a new song to Yahweh and the 144,000. I think it's the message that are given by Yahweh that sinners can't learn until they hear it. They've got to hear this message because they're lost to their sins. Mm-hmm. I think it's a message of repentance. So I believe, like I say, essentially in our age, I, w- I would liken it to the message the Spirit gives us in sharing the, the good news, the gospel. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, maybe it's not too deep for a lot of you listening, but it's deep for me because it's something he's had on my heart for a while. Right. Right. So it's essentially, it's sharing his word. Right. Mm-hmm. It's preaching his word, his unadulterated truth. Even when that puts you on that middle, that middle road between two ditches where everybody hates you for saying it. You know what I mean? From the right. lawless on the left hand side to the legalist on the right hand side, everybody hates you for speaking the whole truth because they don't want to hear it. The legalists want to hear that, that they can puff themselves up and they're better than everybody else. The lawless want to hear they can just throw themselves in their sin. Nobody wants to hear the whole truth. Right. Right. You're never going to be popular speaking the whole truth. But you got to speak it anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the song we're given to sing. But we need the right message, right? There's a lot of people preaching messages. Yeah. And the whole word matters. Our message, our song needs to be based upon the whole word of God. Would you agree with that? Yep. 
and we need to test everything against the whole word of God. That brings me to my question for our open discussion. Okay. So I have a question for you now. You asked me a question, so I have a question for you. Do the words we use matter? The specific words we use? Absolutely. Why? Why why does the way we convey a message matter? Because if if you don't convey it in the right way, the intent of what you're saying can be misconstrued. Absolutely. People can miss the message if we don't use the right words, right? Mm-hmm. Last week, I'm going to share a little anecdote to okay. make my point here. Last week, uh, it was morning, and Faith, my little, she's four. Right. Okay? Well, you know that, but the listeners don't know that. Yeah, so, right, yeah. 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 Faith is four, and she's wanting breakfast. And she asked me for, because she still struggles with her words a little mm-hmm. bit. Okay. And she says, I want, I want butter and bread. I want butter and bread. I'm like butter and bread. It's a weird thing to ask for for breakfast. You want bread and butter? She's like, yes, I want butter and bread. Okay. You don't want cereal? You don't want normal breakfast food? No, no. Butter and bread. Oh, I know what you wanted. Fine. Yeah. I didn't until, until she, okay, just let me get to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, the only reason is, is because my daughter, Abigail, is like a breath older yeah. than that. And I've, I've went through the same thing with her. Struggles the same way. Yeah. So <laughs> so I go in the kitchen begrudgingly. Because I've done I, the same thing. Okay. I guarantee it. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, no, I'm, interrupt, I'm so excited because I'm like, oh, I've done it too. Go, go. So I begrudgingly go to the kitchen and I, I butter up some bread. I get the butter. I get the margarine out. I butter butter two slices of bread and bring it in, bring it into the bedroom to her. Or she's watching her cartoons and she gives me the dirtiest, most disgusted look. She looks at the bread with the butter on it, it glares yeah. up at me, and she's like, No, butter. I'm like, Do you mean peanut butter? Yes, I want a peanut butter uh, sandwich. I'm like, Why didn't you say that? Butter and bread? You know, you got to right. specify the butter you're talking about. Right, that okay. word peanut right. matters. Matters. Okay. So, full disclosure, I didn't change the bread. I just put peanut butter over top of the butter and gave that to her. She there was you. fine with it. I'm fine with it. Maybe that wasn't the most responsible dad thing to do, but she, she liked it. All right. You're good. Well, so here's, I have a similar situation. And so it wasn't, it wasn't exactly like yours, but mine, I did the same thing. She's like, my Abigail said, I want, I want bread on butter or our, our butter on bread. And I was like, okay, gave her some butter bread. And like again, I got the glare like, what is this peasant? Got the stink out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was toast. She wanted it toasted. She wanted toast with butter on it, not just plain bread. And I got it wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Oh, toast again. That matters. You can't yes. just say bread. It has to be toast." So the reason I bring that anecdote up is words matter. Mm-hmm. The word peanut in that equation was a very important word that got left out. Right. And it completely misconstrued her message to me. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I did not get the message and she made sure to make, make me aware of that very quickly. Right. But it wasn't a fault of my own. Right. It was mm-hmm. a fault of the usage of the words. The right word wasn't used. Right. We can apply this biblically. The word of God matters. There is not one syllable that the father in heaven utters that is insignificant unimportant. He says exactly what he means to say and exactly the way he means to say it. And it needs to be followed. And that word needs to be conveyed in wholeness, Mm -hmm. right? In absolute wholeness. 
the Bible is one ongoing testament of of the Father sharing His Word to His covenant people mm-hmm. and expecting that Word to be conveyed and conveyed conveyed and followed. Right? I've shared before. I think few things. There are a couple things that do a lot of damage to our biblical understanding. One is breaking down the entire book into chapters and verses. It makes it so much easier to find the specific reference you're looking for, but it also makes it so much easier to proof text and rip isolated verses out of context. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're taking part of his word and ignoring the rest of it. You're ignoring the surrounding context of the other words he's used. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think does a lot of damage is the blank page between Malachi and Matthew. It creates this false presumption when we approach the word of God that everything previous to that blank page sort of irrelevant to us in the church. We can pick and choose what parts of that word that we like. Everything after the blank page, that's for the church. We'll abide by that. And you're telling the Father, not all of your words matter to me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to take the butter bread and ignore the peanut part. And you get a false, you get a false dichotomy out of that, right? Go you ahead. don't get the, the fullness and the wholeness of his message. Mm-hmm. The words matter. And if he teaches us a song to sing, a message, you can bet 100% that it's based upon his whole word. And if it's based upon a partial version of his word, it came from you. You either invented that song in your mind or you took the song he taught you and you cut some lyrics out because you didn't like it. Mm -hmm. That's a danger. We need to guard against that. Right. It's the whole point of looking at this Sinai Covenant, because I think, as we talked about in our first episode, the Kingdom of Priests, I think is what we called that one, the Contented Kingdom of Priests, that's when we dig into the Ten Commandments. He takes the time to utter that verbally, out loud, so everyone hears. Every syllable mattered, right? Mm -hmm. We can't treat the Word of God like a buffet. Like, I like this part, I don't like this part, so I'm going to take this out. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I guess that's pretty much what I wanted to convey there, that the words are important Mm -hmm. and there's no word that's more important than his word. And we, we've really got to stop picking and choosing what we're willing to accept out of what he said. Right. Right. And we've got to stop following the crowd and doing the things that he calls sin. Cause there's always going to be a crowd of people rebelling against him. It's always been like that. Until the, until the second coming of Christ, Christ is always going to be like that. Typically, the crowd is following after sin. It's always been a remnant, 7,000 in a cave somewhere, who haven't been the need to bail or wavered between two opinions. Mm-hmm. It's always been a remnant. It's always going to be a remnant. 144,000 people in the book of Revelation, that's, that's worldwide. How, what's the world population? Oof. I don't know. I believe it's four billion, right? Your guess is, is I'd have to Google it to tell you the answer. I think it's around four billion, but you know, give or take, it's several billion. Mm-hmm. Okay, one hundred and forty-four thousand people out of that is a drop in the bucket, right? And from a prophetic perspective, if we're taking that word literally, that number literally, and I think we should, because he says it literally, that's it. Of the entire world population, he could only find 144,000 people that hadn't bent their knee to do evil or kiss idols. That's a very small number. Mm-hmm. 
It's a very small number. And I know what the response would be is that the church was raptured out. That's a topic for another time, mm-hmm. even if it was. Even if it was raptured out, that still leaves a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? And why weren't the 144,000 raptured out? That's what I, that, that would be. I was just going to ask that, too. Well, then how come those weren't raptured out? Because I doubt, you know, the church would be, you know what I mean? The church would be the people that wouldn't be bending the knee. Not just not just your rando, ran, your rando person. What do you believe when it comes to the law of God? What do you think the majority of those in the church is? What their opinion of the law of God probably is? Is it to take every word of it seriously, or is it to pick and choose the parts that are relevant to us culturally? What do you think the the majority probably is? The majority, I think, say the whole entire thing is important but yet pick and choose at their discretion. So the words and the actions don't line up. Mm -hmm. I would agree. We have 30,000 plus denominations worldwide, 30,000 plus individual denominations. That's not because they can't agree with each other. It's because they can't agree with the father and they all disagree with the father in their own unique little way, which causes them to be in disagreement with each other. Mm -hmm. If we took the whole word of God seriously, every syllable like we should, would there be 30,000 plus denominations? Mm-mm. Probably not. There'd be one covenant people as it's intended. One new man. That's the intent. Right? Right. If we were just, if we were just committing ourselves to agree with the father and put his word first, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have such division and schism in the church. But when it comes to the topic of division, the ones that get targeted and blamed for it, are the ones who are taking the whole word of God seriously. Mm-hmm. If you if you bring a message like I bring, that we need to take all the Ten Commandments seriously, fourth included, need to take the appointed time seriously, when he says not to mix and mingle with pagan practice, don't put a Jesus tag on it and think that makes it okay, we've got we've to start doing things his way, not our way. People like that, they're the ones that, are, that have the finger pointed at them and are accused of division. It's never the lawless. Church leaders never point at lawless people that are dis- disobeying the Father and encouraging others to do the same. They never point the finger at them and say that they're divisive. They always they always uplift them and commend them for promoting unity. It's the ones that are obeying the Father that are looked down upon, scowled at, and accused of being divisive. Right. That's rebellion. <laughs> and that's why we have so many denominations. Because right. they're all, I'm not going to say it like that, there's a lot of lawlessness in the assemblies to varying degrees, some worse than others. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they all disagree with each other on how much we should be lawless. Right? Right. Let me read this, this passage real quick. Words matter. The words of Jesus matter to you, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in the church would disagree with that. Right? Right. He is the one that we should be following. He set the example. And to, just to reiterate the point I made last week, to, to move into this point that I'm making this week, we can't obey our way to heaven. Don't mis, misunderstand what I'm saying. The, the, the narrow road between the two ditches is not, I think people hear the phrase that we should uh, take that, that how, what's the right way to say, that the truth is in the middle. I've said mm-hmm. that on the podcast before, and I've heard it said by others too, that the truth is in the middle. I think we hear that and we tend to think, oh, that means... If we obey him too much, we're in a ditch. But if we obey him not enough, we're in a ditch. We, we got to obey him just the right amount. 
And that sends the message that we should obey half of his law, but not the other half. Right. That's not what I mean by the truth being in the, in the middle. Being in the middle where the truth is, is more about trusting him and understanding his intent. Right. Right. So not on the right hand side, legalistically obeying because you think you can obey your way to heaven, which you can't do. That's the point I'm reiterating. That's the point I'm reiterating here is that you can't do that. That diminishes the importance of Jesus. He's paramount. Without his work, we're lost. Right. Right. Legalists tend to diminish Jesus. They give him lip service at best. Mm -hmm. But on the other side are those who are more lawless, that they almost treat Jesus like a license to sin. Against right. the like a license to disregard the syllables from the father they don't like. Jesus didn't do that. Right? He walked out the law perfectly. And then we're told to follow after him. So if he obeyed the law perfectly, what should we be seeking to do? Doing what he did. Doing what he did. Obeying the law as perfectly as we can. We're not going to be perfect. Right. All right. Let me get that. And that's why I'm reiterating this point. We can't obey our way to heaven because you're not going to be perfect. You're going to stumble. That's what grace is for. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what mercy is for. But he's not a license to sin either. His grace is not an excuse to just wallow in rebellion. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to dive into his words in a couple places because if words matter, his words should matter. And if you're in a Christian church, his his word should be elevated above everything else. Right. Mm-hmm. If if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then his word should be <laughs> you should never dismiss what he has to say. Ever. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 5. Let me bring it up real quick. So this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's only one small part I'm going to read from this. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And he says this. It's the words of Jesus. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. So the religious leaders of the day didn't follow the law. They taught it hypocritically and didn't follow it. That's what he's getting at there. Mm-hmm. They were rebelling. He's saying, if you don't reject their rebellion, there's no hope for you. That's what he's saying. That's sobering. Right. And there's a couple things there. We can get into the, the heaven and earth thing another time. Some would argue that's an idiom. I'm not going to get into that here. The point that he's making is that his intent was not to abrogate the law of God, right? Until their purpose was achieved, he says. And the purpose is not achieved now. It wasn't achieved at Calvary. It, it's, not, it's not going to be achieved until the new heaven and the new earth when a necessary change occurs, mm-hmm. right? Everything has to be accomplished first. And everything hasn't been accomplished first. Heaven and earth hasn't passed away. And I would also point out that he says in a future context but anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So when they enter into the next life, in the kingdom of heaven, you're rewarded based upon how willing you were to obey the Father's law. It even specifies that it's the law and the prophets. It's Sinai. 
the Sinai covenant we've been looking into the past few weeks, and we're going to mm-hmm. continue looking into for the a few weeks to come, right? Right. He's not necessarily saying you lose your salvation. So I want to caution people, anyone listening on on that point. Sometimes this is misused to say that if you don't obey him perfectly, then you go to hell. It's not really what he's saying. What what it seems like he's saying is that there are different levels of reward based upon the faith that you exhibited from your heart when you lived. And the metric he uses to determine that is how willing you were to obey the Father. So, in other words, how much of his word you accepted and how much of his word you cast aside because you didn't like it. Right? Mm -hmm. And I want to see everybody rewarded to the highest level. Right. That's what I want. I want you... I want you to commit yourself and submit yourself to him fully so that you reach the apex of that reward where you're called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that's what I want for everyone listening, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I want you saved. <laughs> right, yeah, foremost, yeah. But I also want you rewarded. I, I do not want to get to Jesus and find out that I did just enough to squeak through. Does anybody want that? Right. Do we want to get to him and say, well, you weren't bad enough for me to kick you out, but I guess you were just good enough to get in. So I guess come in. Man, yeah. I don't want to hear that. Yeah, it's almost almost like the pity invite to the party. Right. And the next reference I want to read is Matthew chapter 7. So let me turn to that real quick on my tablet. You know, I started using the tablet because I thought it'd be a lot quicker for me. I could just flip from reference to reference super fast. People listening wouldn't even notice. And here we are. Mm. Waiting for <laughs> it to load up. Waiting for it to get to the the part that I actually want to be at. You're right, Chris. I should just have a physical Bible <laughs> and just do that with bookmarks. Be old-fashioned. Sometimes the six-shooter is faster than the semi-automatic. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I wanted to really get to because I keep referencing... I keep referencing this truth that's in the middle, this narrow road that we walk between the two ditches, or we're super unpopular, right? Or <laughs> right? right. we fall into that Ezekiel warning from Ezekiel chapter two, where God tells him, you know, paraphrasing, I'm going to give you a word to speak and you're going to speak the word, but guess what? Nobody's going to listen because they're rebellious and they don't even listen to me, but I need them to hear it anyway, because mm-hmm. I want them to repent. Man, that'd be tough. I know we've talked about that before, right. but how how hard that would be to hear him tell you, "Hey, I'm going to give you this super important message that people really need to hear, but they're gonna they're gonna hate you for it. Mm-hmm. They're 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 gonna try to run you out of their churches. They're gonna preach against you. They may not use your name, but they'll do it in a way where it's obvious they're talking about you. You know what I mean? Right. They're they're not going to accept you, and they're gonna kick against you because they're gonna hate what you have to say because they hate what I have to say." That's essentially what Ezekiel is told by Yahweh. Mm-hmm. It's hard. That's a tough message. Yeah. That's probably the toughest commission that you can get from God. But right. if we get that commission, we need to follow through. Right? Right. But he says this, Jesus, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, he says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. End quote. That breaks my heart every time I read that. Because here's the thing, the way is not difficult. He's not saying that the expectations are hard. Mm-hmm. 
I think what he's saying is that it's hard for us to get past ourselves enough to actually do what he's telling us to do. Mm -hmm. It's pride. We want to do things our way. We want to follow him our way. We, we become our own stumbling block. Right. I think. His law is easy. Man, we, we read through the Ten Commandments. Is any of that hard? No. Nope. Is it difficult not to stab your neighbor to death? Right. Is it difficult not to cheat on your wife? Yeah. Is it honestly difficult to set aside the seventh day? No. Well, There's nothing difficult about what he's asking. Nothing. But we kick against it because our pride won't let us just take all of his words seriously. And then he follows up with this, and this is extraordinarily sobering, and he's talking about this is in the context of false prophets. Okay, I, I want to make that clear because in verse 15 he says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. That's verse 15. So he's essentially setting the context for what I'm about to read. He's not talking about those who are misguided. He's not talking about those who are going to receive minimal reward in the kingdom. What he's talking about are those religious leaders who are intentionally misleading his people. Right? Those who are, for their own gain, for their own selfish ambition, intentionally lying to people to advance themselves. Mm -hmm. Essentially what, going back to Ezekiel, I forget the chapter, but when, when Yahweh, he gives that commission in chapter 2, that the people are rebellious and they won't listen. But then he later, I believe it's in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, I could be wrong, but he defines who he's talking about, the rebels he's talking about, and he class clarifies that he's talking about the priests at the time, so the religious leaders of the day, mm -hmm. would in context for our own time would be pastors. So if he was to, if he was to speak to a new prophet today, he would say the pre, the pro, the pastors rather than the priests, right? Mm -hmm. Or the bad shepherds is what right. he would say. And what he says that they're guilty of and what he's furious at them for is he says, they do violence to my Torah. They refuse, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me. They do violence to my Torah. They refuse to, to acknowledge the difference between the holy and the unholy. They refuse to teach the difference between the unclean and the clean. They hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and because of all this, I am profaned among the people. That's what he says. Mm -hmm. It's sobering. So when he's talking about bad false prophets here, he's talking about bad shepherds. Right. So he's talking about these same sort of people that are intentionally misleading his people. Because that's what the, job, the role of a prophet is to point the way back to Yahweh. So if you're a bad prophet, you're speaking on behalf of Yahweh a word that he never spoke to point to the broad road. Mm -hmm. He just defined the, the difference between the narrow gate and the broadway, right? Right. So essentially a bad false prophet would be pointing to the broad road to hell. That's essentially what they'd mm -hmm. be doing, right? Whether those people actually go to hell, it's a different debate. My point is, is they're, they're pointing in a way that God doesn't sanction. Right. They're a bad shepherd. And again, this is in the context of believers. He's not talking to Hindus here. He's not talking to pagan priests here. He's talking to Christian leaders here in mm -hmm. the context. And, you know, in the context of this, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. But if we're applying this to our day, he's talking about religious leaders of our time within his body. Right. Okay. And then he says this in verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. So those who take all the words of the father seriously. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. 
Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And the most popular, stopping there, the most popular church doctrine about the law is that we're, we have liberty in Christ to break it. That's what we're taught. Right. The majority of churches teach that we have liberty in Christ to disobey certain laws that aren't relevant anymore. We don't have to obey those anymore. But with these references I just read from Jesus, is that what he says? No. Nope. Or does he say the complete opposite? Do his words matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Words matter. And when he says something, we need to take those words seriously and stop playing games with it. Do you have anything else on your mind? Oh, Before we still... hit our break? Oh, okay. No. You sure? Yeah. I didn't know we were still on our... I thought we had kind of transitioned, but... Oh, no, no. This is <clears> the main <throat> topic. Yet. Right on. I'm just, I'm just talking, man. This is our, this awesome. is our what's on your mind section. This, this was what I was, I told you I had a lot on my mind this week. Right. That was a good what's I'm, on your mind. I'm just going through what's on my mind. So, right on. so before, before we hit our meetup, we're going to start a new format. So this has been our what's on your mind sec- segment. We're going to have a, a little bit of a break here in a second. But before we do that, you remember last week, the question I asked? Yes. Yes. What was it? It was, what is the, what is the main difference between King David and King Saul? Perfect. But I think I need a little bit more clarification on that. Okay. What is, I think that the actual question is, what is the distinguishing characteristic between King David and King Saul? Yes. But so is that in a, and I guess it doesn't really matter because my answer is probably going to be the same no matter what. Okay. But is that in as a, as a man or in as a leader of Israel? So essentially what I'm asking is, why is it, what characteristic caused God to call David the apple of his eye, but reject Saul? Okay. What was the, what was the characteristic that distinguished those two men that they caused God to uplift the one, but throw down the other? Does that kind of make sense yep. what I'm getting at? Yep, absolutely. And there's no wrong answer. It's just your perspective. I have my mm-hmm. answer, right? but I just want to hear your take on it. There's this, okay. you're not being graded. Don't worry. All right. Yeah. Darn. You're, getting, you're safe. You're totally safe with this one. I just, I want to hear your perspective on it because I have okay. my own perspective, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. We'll round, we'll round back to that at the end. Uh, for now, I'll just say that David consistently inquired of God with the intent to obey him. That's what I would say for now. He consistently inquired of God. It kind of goes back to what, what was on your mind mm-hmm. early on when we started this segment. Remember what you, were, what you asked yep. me? Yeah. Well, seeking yeah. God. Yeah. It was about, you even use that phrase, seeking him, shall be seeking him in this. Right. Like even in the little things. And that's what I would say distinguishes David and Saul is that David sought God in everything. Right. right. I think David would be the sort of man that would, would have answered the question to what you asked. You should inquire of God on every everything. little thing every day. Yep. I think that's, that's what God saw in David. So I just want to, I want to, and, and repenting when he stumbled. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so he, wasn't perfect, right? Right. But he inquired of God, he sought God, and he course corrected when he needed to. Mm-hmm. That's what I'll say for now. But, uh, you know, and that's why we're digging into the covenant as it relates to us. You know, it's God's intended standard for his people, which, as we just read, Jesus says he did not come to abolish or to abrogate. We're inquiring of God. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what we're doing by digging in, by looking at the Sinai covenant that Jesus consistently points back to, 
and we're inquiring of God, okay, what do you want from us? Right? What do you really want from us? Right. Just, just shredding, shrugging off all of the, the various voices and opinions. What do you have to say, Father? That's essentially what we're asking. Mm -hmm. What's your word on this? You know, how much of the words of men should I be ignoring? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and how yeah. much of your word should I be accepting? Easy answer to that is every single one of them. Every single one, yeah. So we're inquiring of God. So, so we're going to continue to do that in our main topic. But first, as I said, we're going to take a short break. So as we do that, and this is going to be a new thing moving forward, hopefully. And if any of you, by the way, it's going to be a song break. So if any of you listening have music that you've made or that you've recorded that you'd be willing to allow us to use in this segment moving forward, I'd love that because I'll be I'll open and honest with you. I am not paying for the rights to use songs from like Casting Crowns, people like that. I looked into that and it is extraordinarily expensive. There are so many hoops to jump through and I can't do it. Right. I'm, I could do it. I'm not willing to do it. I think it's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> so I would like to find songs from people we know or listeners that they've made their own, their own unique music that we can highlight on the podcast. Right. I think that'd be a lot cooler than, than playing songs from, you know, mm. big name guys that, mm -hmm. you know, that don't need the publicity. They don't need the help. And, yeah. uh, we would need more help from them right. <laughs> than they would need from <laughs> us. So, and I'm just not going to do that. But anyway, so we're going to, as I said, we're going to take a, a short break. Uh, and as we do that, I'm going to play you a song from a friend of mine and I hope you like it. Uh, this is actually, it's the same guy that does our intro and outro music. Uh, his name is Steven Salfelder, and this song is called Love Me Forever. And we'll talk to you on the other side, and I hope you enjoy the song. I have found No matter where I've gone You will love me forever Even when I fell, you never left me. You said, stop and turn towards me forever. You will love me forever. Is your promise to my heart to never leave me? Or forsake me Your grace and mercy Will never depart And you have taken me From darkness mm -hmm, Into your pure light And you have filled me With your spirit I can walk with you tonight and I was hurt Cut deep and wide But your love healed me forever Now I walk with you tonight And I'll walk with you forever 
you will love me forever is your promise to my heart to never leave me or forsake me your grace and mercy will never depart and you have taken me from darkness your pure light you have filled me with your spirit so I can walk with you tonight And we're back. Again, that was Love Me Forever by Stephen Southfelder, one of my favorite criminally unknown artists. Appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And that brings us to our main topic this week. And again, this is digging into the Sinai Covenant, mm-hmm. starting in Exodus 19, I think is where we started. Yep. We, we started our intent series, the intent series. What we're talking about is the God's intent for his covenant people. And we're trying to dig into what his intent actually is for us. Right. Right. Past that blank page <laughs> between Malachi <laughs> and Matthew. Correct. Right. So, or, or I guess past it from our perspective, looking backward. Mm-hmm. Right. So we started off in our episode titled a kingdom of priests. And that's where we dug into the context of approaching Mount Sinai and the 10 commandments given. So just to recap that episode to bring us up to speak, cause that was a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. God brings the mixed multitude to Sinai right out mm-hmm. of Egypt through the Red Sea crossing mm-hmm. and brings the mixed multitude there. And when he says mixed multitude, that means that this wasn't just natural born Israelites, people that we would call Jews kind of falsely called Jews because Jews are Judah and Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And these are all 12 tribes there. Right. Right. When he says mixed multitude, that means Gentiles are there too. Yep. So Egyptians are there obedient Egyptians that wanted to reject the pantheon of ancient Egypt and worship Yahweh. They were invited. Everyone was invited. Being in covenant with Yahweh has never been about genetics. It's never been a race-based salvation. It's always been open to anyone who wants to be in covenant with him and saved. Okay, that's not a New Testament concept. I think we we treat it that way sometimes, like, Mm -hmm. oh, now Gentiles can be saved. Gentiles could always be saved, Mm -hmm. right? We're just on the other side of the reality of the shadow right? The law and the prophets were always pointing to Jesus and the reality of our Mm -hmm. salvation always pointing to that. So on the other side of that, we get grafted in a little bit differently. Yeah. Right. Yep. But what we're grafted into is essentially the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we're all, yeah, we're grafted into the same assembly. Exactly. So I guess what I'm trying to say is Gentile salvation is not new. I mean, read read the book of, uh, uh, oh my goodness, I'm blanking out. Jonah. Whew. Why could I not think of his name? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah was sent to the Ninevites. Those are Assyrians. Right. And if you know history or have listened to every episode of our podcast where we kind of got into it, the Assyrians were awful. Awful. They were guilty of some pretty horrendous sins. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, specifically to call them to repent so he could save them and does because Mm -hmm. they do repent. If salvation was was before the blank page between Malachi and Matthew only offered to natural born Israelites, he never would have bothered sending Jonah to Nineveh. Salvation was always open to Gentiles. That's not new. We I think we've talked about Abedmelech before. Mm-hmm. From the book of Jeremiah, I believe chapter 44, I'm not 100%, from when he was in the pit. Yeah. I don't want to guess. Actually, pretend I didn't say chapter 44 because that's a guess. <laughs> it may not be chapter 44. Yeah. When Jeremiah was thrown into the pit, mm-hmm. Abedmelech was a saved Gentile. Yep. He was not a natural-born Israelite, and he was the only one who stood up, recognized the evil that was being perpetrated against God's prophet, and stood up in his defense. Right? Right. A saved Gentile did that. Pre-Jesus. So I, I just want to reiterate that. That's what this mixed multitude is. He always wanted to save everybody. Yeah. God hasn't changed his intent with that. Mm-hmm. His salvation was always open to everyone, but it was an if-then. It was an if-then dynamic. Mm-hmm. They had to obey. Yep. So following that, he brings them to Sinai. He expresses his desire that they be a kingdom of priests for him. That's important moving forward in this series. He wanted them to be a kingdom of priests. He reserved the firstborn on that first Passover for the entire nation, all the firstborn. Those who disobeyed and held on to the Egyptian pantheon, their firstborn was slain, no matter how old they were. Firstborn of every house died. So if you obediently took part in that first Passover, your firstborn was redeemed for Yahweh. That's the real dynamic of Passover here. And by the way, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Passover is still very, very relevant and significant to us today. Should be, mm-hmm. you know. But the point is, that's that's what the dynamic of Passover was. Originally was him redeeming the firstborn of the household who obeyed him so that all households would have a priest that could approach Yahweh. Right. That's not what we got. We've talked about that, and we're going to get into that as the series progresses. But his intent was a kingdom of priests. And if you haven't listened to our other episodes in the, the Intent series, please do, because right. I get into the references where in Peter, Peter quotes quotes the Exodus covenant almost verbatim when he says that we're set aside to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter's pointing directly to the Sinai covenant from a new covenant standpoint. Mm-hmm. So he's pointing those within what we would call the church back to Mount Sinai and the covenant given there and saying that is the intent that's become real to you today. A kingdom of priests for Yahweh. Right. And this whole covenant of the kingdom of priests is what he expresses in these chapters we're reading. Mm-hmm. We're going to continue reading today. And the point of being a priest was having a closeness with him. Exactly. Exactly. That you were more than just a servant at a distance. Mm-hmm. You were someone who could approach him with intimacy. Right. 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 Like a child. Right, because before this, only priests could approach him 
and converse with him. And and if remember if I remember right, only once a year. Correct. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies mm-hmm. in the temple where the presence of God was during the Day of Atonement. Right. Which is, we'll get into in either next week or the, the following week. That's fascinating because the holy days, the appointed times that were given in the uh, Sinai Covenant with his kingdom of priests and tent doesn't include the Day of Atonement. That doesn't mm-hmm. come until after they rebel. It's very interesting. That gets added later, right. which tells me, just as a teaser, second teaser for the episode, <laughs> that tells me as a teaser that the Day of Atonement was never intended to be a once-a-day-year, or <laughs> a once-a-year day where the high priest could approach, but no one else could. I, I, I believe that we're, we're shown here that his intent was he had a, everyone was a priest, everyone was a child of God, and everyone could approach him. That's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, he's omnipotent. He knew that wasn't going to occur then. He knew they would rebel. But he's still expressing the intent here so that we can look back on this and say, hey, that's that's what he wants for me. Right. That's what he's offering to me through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify that, <clears throat> pardon me, just to clarify that reference that I mentioned earlier, it's, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And he says, you are a chosen people, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And he's quoting from Exodus 19, when God mm-hmm. gives his, his whole purpose in this covenant at Mount Sinai. And again, that's not just similar language, it's on-the-nose language. Right. This, what, what's given at Mount Sinai is our covenant today. The difference is we have the Spirit to lead us in obeying it, mm-hmm. right? which they didn't have. And we'll see as we move forward where that led. So then he gives the terms of that covenant in what we call the Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, it's actually the Ten Words. So what it's actually called in Hebrew, the Ten Words. Mm-hmm. But we call it the Ten Commandments. And that's what we closed with on the uh, A Kingdom of Priests episode. Now, this week, we're reading through what we would call the statutes and ordinances immediately following those Ten Commandments. So you have the big Ten Commandments, sort of like nails on the wall. Right. And all the statutes and ordinances hang on one of those nails. Right. right? The, 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 the Ten Commandments are what's included in the Ark of the Covenant. He takes the tablets of stone and puts that in the Ark of the Covenant in the Most Holy Place. The statute and ordinances are sort of like explanations of how this would apply in day-to-day living. Mm-hmm. Almost like a book, like a handbook. Or, it's almost or, like a handbook or, for how like to live your appendix, life. yeah. Yes, exactly. Or like if it's like the, if the Ten Commandments had a little asterisk by them, this would be at the bottom of the, yes. at the page in the asterisk. Yeah, yeah, this is essentially what... I believe Yahweh teaches Moses following the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. so he can teach the people this. Okay, you have the big Ten Commandments. Now, this is what that's going to look like in practice. Right. Okay. And there's also some little nuggets in here where it's very prophetic, too. Okay. We're going to get into that a little bit, but I don't think we're going to get past chapter 21. We might get a little bit into chapter 22. We'll see. But again, this is essentially God's detailed explanation on how to practically apply and walk out the big Ten day to day from his perspective. And that's really the only perspective that matters. Mm-hmm. Right. We we shouldn't be rewriting the words of the Father to accommodate our desires. Right. And we yeah. certainly shouldn't be allowing our leaders to convince us that we should rewrite his words. We need to follow after Yahweh first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Right. Through the person of Jesus. Right. That needs to be our example. So with that, let's dive in. So we're going to start with verse one in chapter Exodus chapter 21, let me bring it up. 
and it says this. And again, as usual, stop me. If there's anything that you want to dive yeah. into, there's a couple things that I know I want to discuss just a little bit. But for the most part, we're just going to sort of read through and see if there's anything that we want to talk talk about as we go. He says this. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. Again, we're all Israel. We've covered that multiple times. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. I don't know if he gets into this in these statutes, but that seventh year is what's called the Shemitah. It's the the year of release. All debts were released during the Shemitah year. So you have, biblically speaking, there are multiple Sabbath concepts. You have the seventh day Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment we're given. Mm -hmm. The Shemitah would be considered a Sabbath year. Every seventh year would be a Sabbath year. Okay. And essentially, the 1,000-year reign of Christ would be considered a Sabbath millennia. Hmm. So you have multiple Sabbaths, and I think that's where the confusion about the Sabbath comes in, is misunderstanding what Sabbath he's talking about sometimes. Okay. So when we enter into the the Sabbath rest of Christ, that's entering into his reign on earth during the 1,000-year reign, okay. which would be the 7,000th year, right. essentially. So you have essentially seven prophetic days of earth history, 6,000 years without Jesus reigning, 1,000 years with him reigning. That's the Sabbath of, of Christ that we enter, his okay. rest we enter into leading to the new earth. I know that's a wild off, off topic rabbit chase. I just want to kind of clarify that there are different concepts of a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's talking about here with this year of release. Okay. okay. If he was single, when he became your slave, you shall leave him. He shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. I just want to pause here for a second. There is, this is one of the things that I wanted to sort of stop and, and talk about a little bit is the slave dynamic here. Mm -hmm. There's something I think he's telling us prophetically. But I want to emphasize, and we're going to get into this as we move forward, He's not talking about slavery the way that most Americans are going to assume. I think most Americans are going to read this, and you know exactly where their mind's going to go. Mm -hmm. They're going to go to the British American slave trade. And that's not what he's talking about here. This is more like indentured servitude, something you would enter into willingly. Right. Okay, this isn't something that you would be forced into. Right. So I just want to clarify that. He gets into that in the statutes moving forward, but I think this is more of a prophetic implication than something that is realistic to apply. And I have a reason for believing that, which we'll get into in a little bit. Continuing in verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her. My tablet doesn't flip like that. Make Sorry. all that noise. <laughs> <laughs> But I got to Exodus 21 faster. You did. You were sitting there waiting on me. I saw. I saw out of the corner of my eye. But you. <laughs> <laughs> but if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave, 
but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. That's sort of a, that shipwrecks the idea that God is, presents a chauvinistic law. That's very, very protectionist toward women in that, in that culture. Mm-hmm. Very protectionist, and this would be considered a very progressive law when you compare the laws of the surrounding nations of the day where women were treated like chattel, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, Yahweh outlaws that behavior toward women. Continuing in verse 12, anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. This is talking about murder. But if it was simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. However, if someone deliberately kills another person, then the slayer must be dragged even from my altar and be put to death. So I'm pause there. What he's saying there is if something has, for example, you get into a, like in a modern context, if you get into a wreck that wasn't your fault and the person dies, then you could go to a place of refuge so that you wouldn't be punished for something you didn't intend to do. Right. But he's saying if you intentionally murder someone, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter that you're in the in a place of refuge. He's saying even if you're hanging on to my altar in my tabernacle, if you committed murder, then you're to be stoned to death. That's what he's saying. He's saying there won't be any protection for willful, intentional murderers. But if it was an accident, there's protection, right? All right. So he's protecting them from, I guess we would call it rogue justice, right? Right. So if you accidentally kill somebody, right. he's protecting you from being murdered by the family of the slain person. Mm-hmm. Continuing in verse 15, unless you had anything. Uh, had. Vi- yeah, vigilantism. Vigilantism, that's the word I was looking for, yeah. yeah. Continuing in verse 15, anyone who strikes father or mother must be put to death. And this is where I was talking about earlier about slavery. Verse 16 says, Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. Let's stop there for a second. So essentially, this would have outlawed, if we were truly following after these statutes of God and, and doing things in a godly way throughout our history as a Western Christian culture, the slave trade would have been abolished and the, in, the instigators of the slave trade would have been stoned to death. So anyone who would take the statutes we, we, we read at the start of this chapter and say, God's sanctioning slavery just like America committed, this verse right here not only would have outlawed that form of slavery, it would have taken the captains of the ships and the Africans who sold their own people and set them side by side with one another and stoned them all to death. Mm-hmm. He would have outlawed that in the strictest terms possible. That's what he's doing here. And this, I want to pause here for a second because backing up, indentured servitude is something you enter into willingly. It can, it, there can be a couple reasons for it. Okay, it can, it can be that you enter, you, you, you have a lot of debts that you can't pay, mm-hmm. can't possibly pay your debts, so you sell yourself as an indentured servant for this six-year period to pay your debts off, mm-hmm. right? Or it can be because you committed crimes that aren't worthy of the death penalty and you need to, to make restitution for those crimes. Right. Because they didn't have a modern prison system like we have today. Honestly, the, it's a side, side topic. And this is even coming from someone who's worked in the prison system as an officer. The way we 
the way we operate our prison system would probably be abolished day one by Yahweh. Mm-hmm. That's just not, it's not a biblical thing to do. Right. Right. The way we handle it, it over criminalizes, it over punishes or it under punishes. Right. right. You, you take ones that the law would have executed and you give them leniency and you take ones that the law would just have them pay some restitution and you make them sort of 15 years in prison. Right. Right. It, there, there's such imbalance in the way we approach it. And it's not very, it's certainly not biblical and it's not very humane. Right. But going back to the, the, to the slave stuff, again, he outlaws kidnapping or forced slavery on penalty of death. Right. That's essentially what we just read. Mm-hmm. And the way he operates the indentured servitude is you have to be freed after seven years at the most, actually, because if it's based around the Shemitah year, what he's saying is when you get to the Shemitah year, no matter what, they have to be freed, whether they serve two years or six years. They have to be freed. So really, when you really think about it, he makes even indentured servitude a little bit cost ineffective for the master. Right. So if he's outlawing the way slavery is typically perpetrated by the surrounding nations of the day and telling the people of Israel that won't be tolerated, and he's taking the more... I guess, sterilized version of slavery, indentured servitude, and making it cost ineffective. Why is he even talking about it? Why are we talking about slavery here? If he's essentially making slavery so cost ineffective that not many people would even engage in it. Why do you think? I have my opinion, and I do want to stress this is my opinion. And we'll kind of... As this intense series moves forward, I'll probably round back to this to to better explain in future why I have this opinion, because it'll make a little bit more sense post Golden Calf Rebellion. Right. I think it's just it's one of the it's one of the things where he knew it would he knew it would surface again, mm-hmm. so he made sure to to double down on the commandments against it. I think there's an element of that. Yeah. I think he wants to make sure that things are, that the people are always treated in a, in a very humane way. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there's a prophetic implication here. I think essentially what he's teaching us, and you see a little bit of this with the woman. I forget where, where it is, but he says if there's a female indentured servant or slave, and she marries the master's son, she's, to no longer be considered as a slave or an indentured servant, she's to be treated as a daughter with full status. Right. I believe prophetically what he's teaching us here is the difference between being a slave of God and being a son of God. Mm-hmm. I think we're I think we're being shown the difference between being an heir and being a slave. Does that make sense? Yep. Because I believe, and again, we'll get into this as the series progresses, I believe what he's telling us with the intent of a kingdom of priests, what Peter reemphasizes in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, is he's saying that he wants you to be an heir of the kingdom of God, like a son or a daughter. Mm-hmm. But when the people rebelled, they chose instead to be slaves. They chose the consequence of the rebellion, which demoted them from heirs to slaves. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And after that rebellion, when he gives the law a second time at Moab. So he actually, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is actually, in Greek, I believe Deuteronomy actually means second law. 
So it's actually Moses giving the law again, a second time, 40 years later at Moab, after the rebellion. Why would he need to do that? You don't have to answer. You're asking some tough questions. Let's <laughs> <laughs> pay back that question earlier. Yeah, okay. I'm joking. I believe he gives the second law because he's giving the law with different terms because they chose to rebel. They chose not to be a kingdom of priests and instead chose to hold on to their pagan traditions. And he's showing them the consequences of that rebellion. So they had to walk out those consequences so that they could see, so that we could see through the centuries that would follow how impossible it would be to attain to a relationship with God through our own efforts mm. outside of being an heir. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. And Jesus comes on the scene to bring us back to the intent to pay the price in full. So he actually says on, on the cross, it is finished. I believe, I can't remember the Greek word he uses there. It's, I think it's a derivative of telos, I believe. I believe it's a derivative in Greek of telos, but it essentially means to pay in full. So he's not, typically we, we handle when he says it is finished, I'll see the law's done. It's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying there is I've paid the price in full. Mm -hmm. I've taken the debt. He's essentially saying you were a slave. You rebelled after Sinai. You were a slave. I've paid the price to set you free and make you an heir again. That's what he's saying. Right. So I think he's showing us here what the consequences for rebellion would be so that we would understand the magnitude of what Jesus accomplishes by paying our price on our behalf so that we can go back to the intent of Sinai, past Moab, to become heirs again. Hmm. That's why I believe he talks so much about slavery here. Right. I think he's making a point while at the same time making it almost impossible to have a slave. <laughs> See right. what I'm saying? He's making a yeah. point about slavery, but then making it so that they couldn't possibly have slaves. Right. I'm not saying they never did. They disobeyed. Right? They disobeyed to the point where they were sacrificing kids. So I'm sure that if you dug into Israelite history, you would find cases where they had slaves. What I'm telling you is that they were disobeying the law when they did. When they did. Because he made it almost impossible. That's my opinion. Right. And I'll, like I said, as the series progresses... I'll bring up some points that I, I believe validate my opinion, mm -hmm. but still, it's, it's opinion. Opinion. So just right. take that for what it's worth. Continuing in verse 17, anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Now suppose two men quarrel, and one hits the other with a stone or his fist, and the injured person does not die but is confined to bed. If he is later able to walk outside again, even with a crutch, the assailant will not be punished, but must compensate his victim for lost wages and provide for his full recovery. If a man beats his male or female slave with a club and the slave dies as a result, the owner must be punished. But if the slave recovers within a day or two, then the owner shall not be punished since the slave is his property. Again, he's showing us the difference between being an heir and being a slave. Do you see what I mean? Yep while at the same time making it almost impossible for this situation to occur to begin with. Right. There's something prophetic about this. There's something deeply prophetic about this that really becomes more clear after the golden calf mm -hmm. as we move forward, which is chapter 32, so it's going to be a little bit before we get there. We're going to get there, I promise. <laughs> now suppose two men are fighting. Sorry, that's verse, verse 22. Continuing in verse 22. Now suppose two men are fighting, 
and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. That's interesting to me. That's that's leaving that wide open for the husband to demand whatever he wants. Yep. As long as the judges approve. Right? And if he had righteous judges, it wouldn't go too far sideways. Right? right? But I find that interesting. And let me finish this, and we'll talk about this for a second as it applies to us. But if there is further injury... The punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Let's stop there for a second. Everybody knows that reference, right? The eye for eye eye reference? How many people do you think realize that that's in reference to abortion? Because that's essentially what this is. He's Mm. saying that if someone strikes a pregnant woman and it causes her unborn baby to die, that they should pay the full restitution. And if that includes death, it includes death. If he causes her baby to die, life for a life. That's what he's saying. This is one of the strongest affirmations of a full restitution, including the death penalty you'll find in his law. Mm. And it's in reference to someone killing an unborn baby. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Again, but cherry picked. What's eye for an eye? It's the death penalty is just justice. Mm-hmm. But again, you take the whole, the whole, verse twenty-two and twenty-three, the intent. Yes, it was. It's clearly abortion. Absolutely, and you know, just to clarify, this is idiomatic. This the eye for eye reference is idiomatic. Mm-hmm. I think people think it's literal and then they get kind of squeamish about it. Right. But what he's saying here is that if you cause a death, you have to pay that price. Right. And again, it's in reference to an unborn baby. So this idea that God doesn't care about abortion, uh, what would the penalty be for abortionists if we were to apply this law? Death. Death. God takes it seriously. It seems like there are a few things that infuriate him more than killing kids. Again, he gives this very, very strong affirmation about the reconciliation he requires for an unborn baby. He typically was very patient with Israel until they started killing kids and honor their false gods, and that's when he got furious. said he wouldn't even hear the prayers anymore because he was so mad at them because mm. they were killing kids. He takes it seriously. And I don't care. I know... I'm gonna gonna control myself. I'm very passionate about this because he's passionate about this. Mm-hmm. We can't sterilize it and think that it's acceptable to God. We turn it into a medical procedure and a right. woman's rights issue. To God, it's not. It's kid killing. Yep. Period. You manipulate you manipulate the wordplay in in the the terms. And the the phrases used to to make it seem more acceptable. Yes, well, it's not a it's not a child in the womb. It's a fetus. You're just evacuating a fetus. No, you are killing a child. It's a child because the evacuating a fetus is an easier pill to swallow by and large. That's exactly what he's fighting against here. Mm-hmm. It's we're gonna eye for an eye is squeamish because this is squeamish stuff. It, it's exactly. It's serious business. And 
like I say, we've sterilized the idea of it. You know, I don't think you should even express an opinion on abortion until you've watched one. Watch an right. ultrasound of one. Watch them squirming. Right, which is technology we didn't have mm-hmm. from the onset. Yeah, but when know. Roe v. Wade was passed, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, we didn't have that technology. And actually, we've talked before, the guy that fought the hardest to to earn that victory that he would consider a Roe v. Wade, he completely changed his, his position, repented, recanted, and became a Christian after they invented ultrasound the very next year and he watched one and he watched what you and I can watch easily on the internet. You watch them squirm and writhe in pain and, and desperately try to swim away from the, from the forceps of the doctor murdering them. Mm-hmm. It's horrifying. Like I say, he won't hold us guiltless for this. It's, it's detestable in his side. It's absolutely detestable. I was actually listening today on the radio and there was a guy giving a sermon. He was absolutely right. He's like, you know, if, if it doesn't matter what we do as a nation, it doesn't matter how many elections we win, how much we balance the budget, how many great conservative things we do, great moral things we do. If we do not stop abortion, God will destroy this country and he should destroy this country. He did it to Israel and our numbers far surpass Israel's when it comes to the atrocity. Right. He will not hold us guiltless for that, nor will he hold pastors guiltless who refuse to even preach about it because they don't want to chase people away. It's serious. Mm-hmm. I've been chastised before when I talk against abortion because, well, you're, you come across like you hate women. You need to be more understanding of them. They're in pain. I'm sorry if they're, if they're repentant, great. And they need help because it's, it's, it's emotionally destructive. I've seen the impact mm-hmm. that it has on young women when they make that choice. And I don't blame them so much as I blame the industry that convinces them it was a viable choice. Right. That's why I'm so in favor of laws that require the, the mother to watch an ultrasound first before they make the choice. Mm-hmm. When you look at states that pass those laws, the number of elective abortions nosedive. Because right. as soon as a woman hears the heartbeat and sees the baby in the womb on the ultrasound on the screen, in the vast majority of cases, it becomes a person to them. Right. And they understand the impact of their choice and they refuse to go through with what that industry is trying to c- convince them to do. Right. I blame the industry. Mm-hmm. I blame the doctors and nurses. who. who, who I, I just don't know how... Where is your heart at that you can, that you can take part in those procedures and sleep soundly at night? I just. Well, they, they, again, they're listening to the world voice and not to God's voice. They're listening to the world voice that is, as you said, sterilized it Mm -hmm. and made it a medical procedure and made it all about the woman, not the life in her womb. Well, again, right. and I'm not talking about right. the, the mother. I'm talking about the ones that, that slice the baby up. Right. Consciously. Well, that's what I'm saying. They, like, dismiss it. Uh, right, as okay. A, as it's, well, I'm doing the right thing for the mother's health, and that's the important thing. I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. I just, like I say, I can't wrap my mind around how you can go through with it All hundreds right. of times. We, we've got to take that, that sin seriously. Right, there's a... We need to take his whole word seriously, and that's why we're digging into this. And I apologize for 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 diving into the, to this particular topic again so so deep. But if there was one sin 
that I I would really like to see us walk away from before any other. It's that. Hmm. It's that. That's that's probably the great evil of our time. It really is. I would liken it to a Holocaust. Oh yeah. I think it's horrifying. And I think the churches need to take it more seriously than they do. I'm not saying none of them preach against it. Like I say, that I listened to a pastor preach against it on the radio on the way here. And it was great. He was spot on. You know, but too many shy away from approaching it because mm-hmm. they want to be welcoming. And we're not we're not called to welcome sinners and make them feel welcome in their sin. Right? Right. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. And that's something I think I want to talk about in our a little bit next week. What is discipleship? Because mm-hmm. I, I think we have a an unrealistic view of what it is. I think we treat discipleship like it's just getting people to believe in Jesus. And it's so much more than that. Right. And if we were properly discipling people, I would think that we would at least agree on that issue. That butchering babies is probably not right. Right. But we don't disciple. We just bring sinners in, get them to say a sinner's prayer, but never turn away from their sin. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic. We have a country that at one point, I don't know what the numbers are now, probably not very good, but at one point, 70% of the nation affirmed a Christian belief system. And yet, around 49% were in favor of elective abortions, which means a huge percentage of Christians had to have been voting in favor of, in those polls, elective abortions. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I've heard pastors locally preach against people that say you can't believe in that and be a Christian. Whoa, whoa, how dare you say something like that? You're you're saying that somebody's political status determines their faith? Yes. Yes, I am. When their political status demands that they say yes emphatically to butchering babies, that is anathema to the Christian faith. You cannot believe in the one and hold to the other. Right, and there and therein lies an issue too. Is you've turned a, you've turned a moral dilemma into an uh, into a into a political dilemma. Right, you you've you've used abortion as for political gain, and that's again you're stepping away from the issue of the heart. That's partly how the pro-choice crowd won. Is they. They deceived those in the churches into accepting abortion as just a political issue. When, as you stated, it's a moral issue. Mm-hmm. There's nothing political about it. Any more so than it's political whether or not we believe it's okay to rape or to murder or to break into somebody's home and steal everything they own. It's not a political issue, is it? No. It's a right and wrong issue. Right. I don't think I would ever, I don't ever think I would ever see the day a politician would say, it's okay to rape somebody and win an election. Right. But we have seen it where they say it is okay to murder a baby under the umbrella of calling it abortion and win an election. Yeah. Which, again, means that if they're winning elections, it means they have to be pulling a huge number of, of, of individuals who sit every Sunday in a church mm. under a pastor who leads them into believing it's perfectly okay and perfectly acceptable to vote that way. I'm sorry, it's not. I'm not condemning you to hell. That's no. not my job. I will not do that. I, I, but I will say that it's it's serious. Yep. The father takes it serious, and so should you. And if the pastors were doing their jobs, 
as shepherds, they would make it clear to their congregations that this is not acceptable, rather than chastising somebody who says abortion's evil and you might be evil if you agree with it. Whoa, how dare you attack somebody's political affiliations? Right. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what they choose to preach against and, and attack. Well, woe to you. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're standing guard and playing defense for abortionists, woe to you. I don't think I have anything to worry about on that topic. Nope. Where did I leave off? What verse? Uh, 26. Okay. Continuing on. If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And if a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female sleeve, slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Again, we have one of these issues where in one verse, and I think he's making a point, he talks about, a master beating his slave, right? Mm-hmm. And beating him pretty savagely. But then in a, just a few verses down, he makes it clear that if you do any kind of damage to him, you have to, you have to free him day one. You know what I mean? Right. right. If you do any kind of damage to this person physically, you have to set them free. So he gives one statute about beating a slave that seems to be making a prophetic point. And then you skip down just a little bit. He, he leaves us another statute that makes it impossible to engage in that sort of behavior towards slaves and be cost effective. Right. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. This isn't him contradicting himself. This is him making a point while at the same time making slavery almost impossible to lawfully execute in Israel. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. If an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring, and the owner had been informed, but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned, and the owner must also be put to death. So he's holding you liable for, that. like, for example, I think what you, where you would see this issue in more of a, a modern context is having a violent dog. If you have a violent dog that's attacked people multiple times and you refuse to put it on a leash or keep it in a fenced-in backyard and it ends up killing somebody, then you should be executed for it. essentially what he's saying. Right. The dog should be put down and you should yeah, be executed. You're, you're essentially keeping a deadly weapon. Exactly. Exactly right. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to compensate for the loss of life. The owner of the ox may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. And that's interesting, too. He gives you an out. He gives you an out. If you pay restitution, then you can avoid the death penalty, mm-hmm. which is, again, another example of his grace. Like, we, we treat grace as if grace didn't exist until after cavalry. Well, this is grace. Right. God is consistently gracious. You know, we've gotten to that multiple times. You, you can't read the fullness of the Word of God and come away believing that God wasn't gracious at one point and then became gracious later. Right. He was always gracious and willing to forgive. Verse 31, the same regulation applies... If the, ox gores a boy or, uh, if the ox gores a boy or a girl, but if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins and the ox must be stoned. Interesting number. 30 silver coins. 30 shekels of silver. What do you think this is prophetic of? Uh, Joseph. Joseph and Jesus. When Judas oh, sold him, sorry, I, I should have, I should have got that lead in there. Sorry. So this is why one of the 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 major reasons why I believe that his 
his explanation of slave laws is very prophetic for how we would rebel and choose slave status, and Jesus would redeem us from that slave status. Because essentially, what we're, what we're seeing here, this is a redemption price for the slave, for the dead slave. The redemption price is 30 silver coins. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is what Jesus was sold, Judas sold out Jesus. And it, it, it lines up and correlates with this. So essentially, Judas is, he's applying this statute to Jesus. So he's making Jesus the slave in this prophetic statute. We became slaves from our rebellion. Right. Jesus walked out the will of the Father perfectly and became a slave because he was sold out and then died to redeem us. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He paid the redemption price. Right. Another example of how the, the work of Jesus for us points us directly back to the Sinai covenant. He takes us who sold ourselves to slave status, allows himself to be sold as a slave and die so that we can be redeemed as heirs of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and become a royal priesthood. How awesome is that? And you Very see this awesome. consistently that the Sinai covenant points forward to Jesus while Jesus points backward to the Sinai covenant. They're intimately linked. Right. You can't have one without the other. I'll close this out with these last couple of verses and then we'll probably, we'll probably cut it off. Suppose someone digs or uncovers a pit and falls into it. Or, I'm sorry. Suppose someone digs or uncovers a pit and fails to cover it and then an ox or a donkey falls into it. The owner of the pit must pay full compensation to the owner of the animal, but then he gets to keep the dead animal. If someone ox, if someone's ox injures a neighbor's ox and the injured ox dies, then the two owners must sell the live ox and divide the price equally between them. They must also divide the dead animal. But if the ox had a reputation for goring, yet its owner failed to keep it under control, he must pay full compensation, a live ox for the dead one, but he may keep the dead one. And that's the close of chapter 22, and I think that's where we're going to stop for today. But again, I, we, we essentially have a combination of very prophetic statutes related to slave status compared to heir status, but intermingled with explanations on how to walk out his law on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis. Right. Right. You see a lot of, of restitution, how to handle restitution. Mm-hmm. When, when one neighbor wrongs another neighbor, how do you bring them together to make restitution, to make the wrong right so you can move forward? Right. He's a, there's, there's a lot of emphasis there on how to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. When we say love neighbor, love God, he's essentially explaining to us what that looks like in practice. Right. And he's taking scenarios that have relevance for their culture and relevance for ours. Right. right, you could replace ox with with a lot of different things in a modern setting, mm-hmm. and the the spirit of the statute would apply in exactly right. the same way. It's just showing that we shouldn't engage in holding grudges, right? We shouldn't allow uh, the wrong committed to us to cause us to wrong another. Mm-hmm. He's giving very clear stipulations on how you come together, make restitution, and move forward as brothers or sisters, right? right? How to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. It's essentially what it's explaining. And when we say we should love our neighbor vaguely, but then we ignore these statutes, love your neighbor becomes sort of a nebulous command that we can apply any way we choose to. And God, if we take the full word of God seriously, every syllable, like we talked about earlier, he doesn't give us leeway to apply it however we choose to. 
He says, this is how it's to be applied. Mm-hmm. This is how you walk out these commandments as I see fit. Right? Right. And he has that prerogative. Yeah. He's the master. Yep. You have any thoughts? No. I'm learning a lot. It's pretty fascinating stuff, isn't yes. it? Yes. It's really, it's a cool study. It's a very neglected study. So earlier, I asked, what distinguished King David from King Saul? What is your answer? Um, so I think if you, my, my answer, I, I think came from, make sure I get the reference right. First Samuel chapter 15. Um, I kind of read through, you know, seeking the, the answer. I kind of read through most of 15 all the way into 16. Um, but what stuck out to me the most, um, First Samuel 15, verse, and we'll start with verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. Um, I think that's kind of the, the sticking point along. I mean, along with David constantly turned to God where it seemed Saul constantly turned away from him. Yes. He was given explicit instructions to annihilate all of the Amalekites. I think that's the right word. I believe so, yeah. Amalekites. Amalekites, okay. I I just wanted to say the name right. Um, But yet he spared their king and the best of their cattle. Yeah, he killed the people, but he he saved the elitist. Yeah, saved the elitist. Because he feared what that the people would be mad that he killed everything mm-hmm. instead of listening to the Lord and slaughtering everything. Do you think he was really afraid of that, or do you think that was his excuse? I it might have been his excuse, but I think I'm I'm well, I don't know. I think he was because he. I'm I believe I remember reading that he said that he was. He, that, and then that he admitted that that's why he saved them mm-hmm. was that he was afraid he wanted to, to please the people, but also try and please God. Right. So he was kind of using that as, well, I didn't kill everything. And I didn't. So I, that's why I didn't follow the, the whole instruction. And, and I think that's kind of where, you know, that set him apart from David, where David was always trying to please him. So I was always trying to please the people. And in this case, did so by directly disobeying God. Right. It was rebellion. Right. It was point blank rebellion. The only reason I ask that, and it's, it's very opinionated because we don't have an answer. Right. Like I lean toward that was his excuse. I think he did what he wanted because you don't see him say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I want to plead, plead to Yahweh. He's righteous. I want to plead for his forgiveness. We just see him making excuses for why it was everybody else's fault, not his own. Mm. I thought he did, though. I don't believe he, he, he did. Maybe maybe I read that wrong. Hold on. I could I could be mistaken. Let's 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 look at it and okay. see for sure. Uh, but then I'll share a connection for right. why why I I lean toward my opinion on that. Why I think he was lying. And I, and I did catch that too, because I think in his I think this is what he was saying. Mm-hmm. I think he asked for forgiveness, but he didn't really believe it in his heart. Let me find let me find the passage. 
So, so in chapter 30, verse 30, for, yeah, verse 30, sorry. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, it says, Saul replied, I have sinned and please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. And so Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So I say where he did, he did. I think that's where he was kind of saying the right. I sinned. Mm -hmm. So we see all through chapter 15, they're going back and forth. He's, you know, Saul is saying, yes, I did follow him. Samuel saying, no, you didn't. I thought I read in here where somewhere he said, please forgive me so that I may worship your Lord. He does. He refer he refers to Yahweh as the Lord Samuels. Yeah. God. The Lord, your God. Mm -hmm. And he repeatedly re says the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God. And yeah, here it comes. Saul, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. Mm -hmm. So even though this whole time, like, I think that's, he is, he is saying, I sinned, please forgive me. I don't think that's what's in his heart because the words that he's using, the actual specific words are not Lord, the God, it's the Lord, your God. His words don't match the actions. Right. It's exactly like we talked about in our open discussion. Exactly. That's that's I, that's why I kind of smiled when you said that. I was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I kicked the thing. That's all right. The reason I lean toward him lying here about his repentance is mm -hmm. it reminds me, and I'm, I'm actually going to round back to that verse because I wrote down this exact same verse that you, okay. that you pointed out there. But it reminds me a little too much of Aaron. During the golden calf. Now we're told, and we're gonna we're gonna dissect that. So I'm just gonna sort of paraphrase. But we're mm -hmm. gonna dissect that in its own episode. But we're told that Aaron fashioned the golden calf with a carving tool. He made it, right. right? Because the people wanted it. So he fashioned it out with a carving tool. But then later, when he's confronted by Moses, why did you do this thing? Aaron says, "Oh, I just I just put the gold in the fire and just out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. I thought it was a miracle. Sorry." His repentance right. was mixed in with an excuse for why he didn't do anything wrong. So on one hand, he's saying, yeah, I sinned. I'm sorry. But on the other hand, he's saying, but I didn't really sin because it really wasn't my fault. So are you really sorry? And I see that same heart in Saul. Okay. Now, Aaron came out of it, right? On the other mm -hmm. side, he came out of it, which proves that you can rebel and still repent. But I don't see evidence that Saul ever did, right? Right. I don't see evidence that he came out of that rebellion like Saul or like Aaron did. I'm sorry. Right. And that's kind of what I was getting at was that the wording he was using was important because even though he said the words, it's not what it was in his heart. And right. That's what, was, that's what matters. So I'm going to, I'm going to close out. I'm going to close this out this week with my answer. Unless you have any other final thoughts, no. I'm going to give my response to this and this will close this out. So when we're talking about the distinguishing characteristic between David and Saul, it wasn't a lack of sin, right? Would you agree? I agree. Yeah, they both uh, committed some pretty egregious sins. Yes. And I think you can make the argument that David's sin was objectively worse. Mm -hmm. We know that story, right. right? Committed adultery with Bathsheba. It may or may not have been fully consensual. Mm -hmm. We don't know if she felt like she had a choice. And then murdered her husband. Okay, it was bad. His right. sin was really bad. And it implies that because it goes all the way up to the point where the baby's born. 
which means that he committed adultery, then committed conspiracy to cover it up, then committed murder to cover it up, and then covered it up in his heart for a full nine-month period because he's not confronted by the prophet Nathan until the baby's born, mm-hmm. which means he never repented for almost a year. He engaged in a full-blown cover-up. It was bad. His sin was bad. Right. Right. So when we're talking about the difference between David and Saul, it's not a lack of sin. What did I say distinguished them? Do you remember at the close of our first segment? That David consistently sought after God's approval. Yes, he inquired of him. He inquired after Yahweh to to determine what Yahweh wanted from him. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many times we're told Saul inquired of Yahweh in the biblical text? How many times he inquired of him? How many times we're told that Saul actually inquired of Yahweh like David did consistently? I think I might have only remembered one time Once. where he did. He only inquired one time, and, and God ignored Saul, we're told, because Saul was rebelling against him, and he wasn't repenting like Aaron repented, mm-hmm. right? When Yahweh didn't respond to him the way he wanted him to, on the one and only occasion he ever inquired of him, did he repent? Do you think he repented, said, I'm sorry, God, I'll fix what I'm doing wrong? I promise. Yeah, survey says no. No. You know what he did do? Do you remember? Mm-mm. He went straight from inquiring of Yahweh to instead inquiring of a demonic medium to get the answer he wanted. His response to not being responded to by Yahweh because he was repelling, re- rebelling was to go after a demonic medium and inquire of a demonic medium instead. That's how deep his rebellion went. Saul only cared about Saul. That was his problem. Both men sinned, and again, David may have sinned more severely, but their response to God's rebuke about their sin tells us everything we need to know about their heart condition. Mm -hmm. Right? Again, I just described David's sin. Right? I think we all probably know that, but just in case to bring us up to speed, I described his the sin of David I'm talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. Confronted by Nathan after that nine-month period of rebellion and cover-up, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David says in response, when, when Nathan gives this awesome rebuke to David, where he shares this anecdote about someone who took someone's beloved pet and killed it, and David gets infuriated, and he is like, bring that person to me, we're going to punish him. And then Nathan, I can picture the scene, Nathan points his finger at David and says, you're the man I'm talking about. You took Uriah's wife, whom he loved, stole her away from him, and then murdered him because she couldn't cover it up. You're the man I'm talking about. And David's response to that was not anger, like Saul's probably would have been. His response was, I have sinned against Yahweh, and he repents. And we'll see that repentance in a psalm I'm going to read at the close. And I'll close with that in a moment. But his, he, he immediately humbled himself. That was his response. Saul, in that verse that you referenced, on the other hand, when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel about his own disobedience, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he likewise confesses his guilt like you pointed out. He says, I have sinned, similarly to what David says, right? But David says, I have sinned, and he ends it with that, right? right? And seeks restitution with God. Saul says, I have sinned, but then he follows it up with this, please, Samuel, at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship Yahweh your God. 
Let me repeat that with a couple emphasis. Please, Samuel, at least honor me. At least honor me before the elders and the people before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship Yahweh, your God. What was Saul's focus there? Himself. Honoring himself. It wasn't repentance. He wanted to make sure that the elders saw that he was elevated, that the great king Saul was elevated and he'd be honored among the people. That was his response to being called out for his sin. Total selfishness. Zero humility, zero repentance, and a heart far from God. The heart between David and Saul, even in the midst of their rebellion, was the difference. That was the difference maker. David had a heart committed to seeking and obeying Yahweh and repenting when he strayed, while Saul had a heart committed only to himself, and that never changed throughout his entire life. As I said in the beginning, we can't obey our way into heaven, and I stand by that, right? We need a Savior, but we can rebel our way into separation from God as Saul did. It's exactly what he did. He rebelled his way into separation. So did David, but David repented his way back, Mm -hmm. right? Repentance is required. Our actions are an outpouring of our heart. We've talked about that a lot, right? right? It's inside out. What we do on the outside is a reflection of who we are on the inside. And we need to commit our hearts to seeking and obeying Yahweh in the name of Jesus and behave in a way that reflects that commitment. It's not optional. The commands and statutes we've been covering these past few weeks define that behavior. Every word, every syllable, even the parts that doctrine conditions us to disregard, redefine, or despise. The words of the Father are paramount. Prophesying about the time following the return of Jesus, Ezekiel says in chapter 37, verse 24 of his book, David, my servant, shall be king over them. He's talking about Jesus there. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Talking about Jesus there. In a new covenant context, he's saying they will obey me. They will obey my commandments. They will obey my statutes. It's not an option. If this is what we'll be doing in the kingdom, under Jesus, obeying the commandments and statutes we've been reviewing these past few weeks, then why would we ignore them now? Does that make sense? Oh. We call this an age of grace to excuse our rebellion. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think we've been in a probationary period where he's been willing to be patient. But that probationary period will come to a close. And we will be required to obey him. And only those with a heart willing to inquire of him and surrender to that obedience will be allowed to enter in. Those who work after iniquity and have a heart that refuses to obey, what did we read Jesus say that he'll say to them when it comes to separating the sheep and the goats earlier? In Matthew chapter 7, away with you, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. I don't want to be on that side of Jesus. Do you? No. What we do matters to God. He makes that abundantly clear from Genesis to Revelation, and it starts with the heart, like it did for David. Or it leads to our end from the heart like it did with Saul.
I'm going to close with David's song of repentance. Going back to singing a song, right? right? A song we should all be singing in our own way. It's Psalm 51, and it says this. This is on the other side of him being confronted by Nathan the prophet. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray this has been a blessing to you. If you have any questions or feedback, find us on Facebook at that Philly Faith Fellowship and join the conversation. The link will be in in the description. If you'd like to help this ministry grow, then we simply ask that you follow or subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. And please leave a like or positive review where available. Then share us with your friends. All those things help us grow. Again, thank you for listening. And as always, and most importantly, keep your feet steady upon the path. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and pursue that Philly faith. That Revelation chapter 3, Philly faith. Until next time, shalom. God bless. Singing glory, hallelujah.